Hey folks, welcome to the Classical Liberal Project. My name is Danielle. I'm here with Jonathan Casey and Jonathan Eagle. And uh, we've got our special guest today, Dylan Burns. Um, Dylan, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself? Um, maybe how you got interested in Ukraine or uh, why folks like me who know nothing about you should even listen to this? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Uh, my name is Dylan Burns. Uh, I was born and raised in the best state in America, uh, known as Maryland. Uh, I'm a coast. I was born a coastal elitist, and I will die a coastal elitist. It's just how it is. But I first started getting interested in foreign policy while I was first getting interested interested in politics in high school when I was starting to work on local state campaigns and get involved in local advocacy, I started following the Syrian civil war day by day by relying on open source intelligence. I went to a school where you could take, you know, laptops and computers to school. And I spent all of my free time between classes and during lunch, kind of following all the battles, seeing what photographs were coming out, what weapons different factions were using and, and following it because I, I got very emotionally invested even after I got intellectually invested in what was going on in Syria. That's how I first got interested in foreign policy. I then, while still in high school, I, I started studying foreign policy a little bit about it in like IR at the University of Maryland through a program where you can take college classes while still in high school. And uh, I started studying IR in college, but then the war in Ukraine happened. And I had already worked as a foreign policy advisor for two congressional campaigns at that point. And so I made the decision like, look, you know, I can get a degree anytime I want. Um, an opportunity like this for uh, for an independent struggle of this scale um, doesn't happen. You can't really like, choose when that happens. So I made a decision that I would go over there and I would try to document what was going on because my coverage uh, was getting a lot of uh, attention on my channel and I was making a decent amount of money through covering it uh, early on. So I wanted to put that money back towards improving the coverage. And I've definitely done that. Uh, and, I, and I'm now very interested in developing myself as a uh, war journalist. How often have you been over there and for how much time? I was probably over there for about four or five months. Um, by the time that I'd left, I had been there for the majority of the war. Now I've, I've been gone enough that that's no longer the case. But I, I spent uh, my I was there during the Kherson counteroffensive. I was I was there during the uh, Kharkiv counteroffensive as well. Um, and I was I was in the Kherson area during that as well. So it was during a lot of very vital moments in the war when the um, when the you know, when the table started to get turned on the Russians and a lot of the territory was started getting captured back. Noted. I, I, you know, one of the things that I think you'll see in the title for the listeners that are joining us is, I, you know, as you, as you know, the classical liberal project is associated with the classical liberal caucus and we're a part uh, kind of a, an organizing group within the libertarian party. Um, this has been a, the, the war in Ukraine is a big topic among everyone, but in the libertarian party, there's been a lot of conflict around this topic. Um, and there's been a lot of, uh, to be honest with you, what feels like Russian misinformation and propaganda making its way into some of these online circles. Um, and so one of the things that I was hoping we could do in the conversation was talk a little bit about your experience and talk through some of the things that we hear floating around, some things that I think are misinformation or some things that are truthful. I'm um, kind of see both sides of the issue. I know that you spend a lot of time thinking about this and talking to people. So that was what I was hoping we could do. Sure. Um, and I know you just you just recently got back. Would you just get back from Ukraine like in October? Right? I it was I think it was like October, November. It was right when Christmas was coming up. I wanted to be home by Christmas. That was what I was aiming for. And I, I it took my time here to kind of relax, reorientate myself, 
try to develop a model where my type of work can be financially stable because this has been a huge adjustment from what I was doing before. I, Joshua, when we were talking uh, at Miami, we even talked about this, that my, my shift in what I was doing as a content creator has, has been very massive and that has come with fi some financial strain. And so I needed to take time to figure out how to manage this. Um, and But I have done a little bit of work. I went to the Rage Against the Machine rally where the chair of the Libertarian Party was speaking and my goodness, what a what a what a decadent event it was very very bad hey i feel like you did do it some uh you did try to do it justice with some rather unbiased coverage like i felt like you were just sitting there talking and asking questions like actually hearing people stories and like trying to like listen to them which i think you did a great job of but one of the things i thought we would be wise and jonathan danielle jump in and tell me if you think we should take a different approach here but i think we should go back to the beginning um, okay. and talk a little bit about 2014 which i i know that you know this this conflict goes back hundreds of years right this is not something that's by any means new but i i said if we're going to look at really where this escalated and the pivot point was 2014 um and i think starting there and kind of working our way up to more current events would be an interesting idea an interesting angle so one of the things that i hear floating around a lot and i've heard this a lot today is that the 2014 revolution i think is what you know the the, the major uprisings against russian interference were a CIA plot uh, mm -hmm. that was backed by the U.S. government. It wasn't natural or organic by any means. I had some anecdotes on that based on my work um, with people that I know that were involved in those revolutions that I think is interesting. But I'm curious as to whether or not you've heard this narrative before. How do you address it, and what are your thoughts on it? I, I've heard this narrative a lot. Uh, it's not a new narrative. It's something that has been talked about ever since the Euromaidan revolution, also known as the Revolution of Dignity. Uh, by people who are more involved uh, with it. Um, so it's not a new conspiracy theory, but I, I don't really give it any grounding. And I think the best way to to talk about this is to just go through the, the period of events, because what a lot of people portray it as is that Yanukovych was like in office one day, then a bunch of people were like, I really hate the Russians, and I've been given all this money and resources by the CIA, Then and then CIA-backed Nazis overthrew the government. That seems to be the narrative that is brought forward. I've seen people like, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to do direct call-outs here, but I've seen people like Jimmy Dore like, push this narrative on like the PPD podcast and a bunch of other locations where a lot of information is, is deceptively left out to not paint the full picture. And so I think actually we should start in 2012. We could start anywhere, but 2012 is the easiest place to start because that's when Yanukovych ran for re-election. While he was running for re-election, he promised that he would institute something called the Association Agreement. What the Association Agreement was, was an agreement between Ukraine and the European Union that would allow things like visa-free travel, a bunch of unrestricted trade, things that I would assume a lot of classical liberals like yourself would actually probably have think, hey, that's a good thing. The interconnectedness of the world will, will allow not only more prosperity economically, but also, uh, I believe, as, as kind of a libcuck, that the more uh, international trade you have, the more trade you have with the nation, the less likely you go to war with them. If you want a cocoa bean supply, if you go to war with your cocoa bean supplier, it's kind of hard to, you know, trade the cocoa beans. And so I thought it was a good thing. And the majority of Ukrainians agreed that it was a good thing. The majority of Ukrainians favored it. And part of the reason Yanukovych won was because he made this promise. Two years passed by and the negotiations on the association agreement are winding down. It's 2014. And as they're preparing to sign the agreement, Russia decides to use something called economic coercion against the Ukrainian state. They they stop 25% of Ukraine's trade. Just, like imagine if America tomorrow, 25% of our trade just stopped at the border and right. Canada said, if you don't do this, 
you're not just that's just done. The truck stop, right? Yanukovych is scared now because not only is it that the economy is now possibly going to get wrapped by by the Russians, like dragged over the coals, but he's also scared because there's been a lot of suggestions that Putin and the Russian government behind closed doors were pressuring him hard to back off the association agreement, not only back off the association agreement, but then instead joined the Eurasian Economic Union, which was the Russian alternative. And so Yanukovych goes back on his campaign promise and announces in the middle of the night, I think it was about like 1, 11 p.m., 11.30 p.m., which is something that you'll sometimes see other political movements do is they do it, they announce it at the worst times to, to try to like stop there being backlash. He announces yeah. it in the middle of the night and... A bunch of students go out and protest against it in the middle of the night, spontaneously. So when people talk about a CIA coup, my first question would have to be, how did the CIA organize them so quickly after this was announced in the middle of the night? To me, it it doesn't really make any sense. Definitely considering none of those student protesters, has been any evidence that there's been tied to the CIA or tied to the Central Intelligence Agency. The spontaneousness of the immediate response makes it hard for me to believe that that was organized by the CIA. And so that spontaneous response is responded to by the Berkut police services, which is a which is now a defunct police service that was in Ukraine that was basically like riot police. Uh, they had been accused of torture, racketeering, all of which, from what I've studied, seem to be accurate accusations against them. They go out with metal poles and they beat students. They uh, this developed later on, but they would tie flashbangs with screws and bolts and nails and they would throw them into the crowds so when the flashbangs exploded even though it was a flashbang it would damage people and cut them up um as the violence got worse and worse ukrainians saw this and now the outrage wasn't just he caved to russian pressure pulled out of a popular economic union that saw us modernizing with the rest of europe but now they're beating the ukrainian people and specifically students, so young Ukrainian people. Um, people could maybe talk about like the Kent State Massacre and the reaction to that in the United States for some type of equivalent, right? Obviously, more people ended up dying by the end of the Euromaidan protest, but to some American equivalent to communicate this to people at home. At that point, more people joined the protest movement. It expanded into the Automaidan. And as the movement expanded and we had more medics and people on the ground and, and like, you know, the movement just got bigger and bigger. Uh, the response to it got more and more brutal. This is when the Tutushki came in. The Tutushki, and I mean this literally, were hired gangsters. As in, it would be the equivalent of Biden going out and hiring MS-13 to go put down some rally about inflation. This is the equivalent of what the, the Ukrainian government under Yanukovych did. They went out and hired literal gangster thugs to go out and either instigate violence, be violent towards people, or in, or in some instances murder people. I have interviewed Euromaidan protesters on my channel who tell me about Chatushki's murdering people at their protests across mm. the country, uh, about people being bussed in to do these types of activities. And as the protest movement was beat upon harder, it only got worse and worse for Yanukovych. He had reached a boiling point. His mandate had been lost. Yep. And so negotiations started, and the United States actually suggests behind closed doors that they should accept the proposal from the Yanukovych regime. The the protesters don't. Yeah, the the protesters should accept it. People talk about the Victoria Nuland phone call as a piece of evidence, but if people listen to the whole phone call, in that phone call, uh, as a piece of evidence for the for its being CIA, because they were they were like, ah, we want to we don't like this government and we we want this guy to be in charge possibly instead. 
But in that phone call, they specifically say, we don't think the protesters should keep going. They should accept the deal. So they but then make they a deal with the Russian back. Uh, yes, they should proposal. make a deal with the Russian back proposal, but right. they don't. And I think that's another big sticking point for it right. being a CIA plan. If it was a CIA plan, why were protesters doing what the United States and, and Victoria Newland, who is supposed to be like the mastermind of this CIA coup, why are they doing the exact opposite of what they would have suggested? It doesn't make sense to me. And I think the biggest piece of evidence that there is for it being a CIA backed coup outside of just like, you know, like just like conspiracy rambling or stuff that doesn't have any evidence was the idea that the National Endowment for Democracy, which does have some historical ties to the CIA, had given money to certain Ukrainian NGOs that promote the idea of like democracy or like anti-corruption in the country. And the idea is that by us doing that, we had taken capture of Ukrainian sentiment and made them go do it by brainwashing them through our NGOs. Um, I, to me, I feel like this is really underselling the Ukrainian people. This is really underselling their autonomy, their ability yeah. for them Absolutely. to make their own decisions. Nation states all around the world influence each other all the time, right? Through different ways, sometimes even more covert. For example, it would be really dumb for me to say that the reason Donald Trump won in, in 2016 was because of the Internet Research Agency. Because of the Russian Internet Research Agency and because of some Facebook memes, right. that's the reason he won. Therefore, it was a coup in the yep. United States, a Russian-backed coup, and we had a Russian dictator for four years. That would be silly. It would be yeah. silly. No, I don't care if Rachel Maddow says it herself. That would be a silly thing to do. But many of the people who would know how silly that is and will go out and say Russia Gate, Russia hoax, are willing to use that same logic when talking about Ukraine in another country. It, it feels mm. like there's a, a, a real laugh of a, a real lack of self-reflection when it comes to this accusation. Yeah, one of the things that I think you touched on at the beginning was the, this is it goes back to a very core libertarian principle. I mean, the thing that triggered this was the the country's decision to try to align and have free trade with a with a with an ally, make their own independent decision without having to be bullied or, in, or you know pushed around by another big power. So that's it's very powerful. Um, Jonathan, you want to take it, or Danielle? I don't want to hog all the questions. Um, yeah, so um, so that's a really interesting uh, story leading up into uh, the election of, Zel of Zelensky. Um, how did that, how did that kind of mo move into that? How did he capture that sentiment? Cause it sounds like when I mean, he was elected in a, uh, um, you know, landslide victory. So I'm assuming that he captured that sentiment that came with those, those protests. Not um, exactly. Okay. What happened was they had an interim president after Yanukovych fled the country right. in a helicopter uh, after he, you know, tucked his tail and ran, um, uh, Ashraf Ghani, uh, he's the original Ashraf Ghani, uh, former president of Afghanistan. And so when he w flees the country, they install a interim president and then they hold a democratic election. And this is the thing when they talk about a coup, there was a democratic election that then elected, uh, Petro Poroshenko, who is a, uh, person who is an oligarch, uh, but he did win democratically. There seems to be no international monitors that seem to dispute the veracity of the results of that election. And then Petro Poroshenko didn't really deliver on what a lot of people wanted out of Euromaidan. And I think the main reason why is the dude, you know, is an oligarch and he was not bringing about the changes at the speed that a lot of people wanted. He did some things that people appreciated when it came to like preparing the Ukrainian military because the Ukrainian military really failed in 2014. Because after Yanukovych fled the country, the Russians invaded Crimea to secure, they talk about liberation, but it was in large part to secure military bases. And they wanted to have access to the Black Sea port. And they were worried that the Ukrainian government might not renew the contract if it's not as friendly to them. Definitely if 
they were doing what they were doing into the lead up of Euromaidan, a Euromaidan revolutionary president would probably not very, be very friendly to Russia. Um, so at that point, Petro Poroshenko gets elected and he doesn't deliver as much on the anti-corruption stuff as people wanted, because as much as the Euromaidan was about the Russians not controlling Ukrainian internal and foreign policy, it was also built up sentiment about anti-corruption efforts as well and strengthening Ukrainian institutions. And the problem with Petro Poroshenko is just a lot of his friends were people who he would protect uh, and would not properly prosecute. And this was an issue uh, during uh, the Obama administration and, and multiple administrations as they were trying to deal with post-Euromaidan. This is actually where the Joe Biden goes to Ukraine and pressures the prosecutor comes from. It was the fact that the, that prosecutor was corrupt. And if you have a corrupt prosecutor, how are you going to corrupt, prosecute corruption? Um, and, and it was his failure, though, to deliver on the promise of Euromaidan that led to Zelensky, who was a comedian, running as, hey, I played a president on TV, elect me president now, led him to win. It was... Uh, it wasn't it was kind of Trumpian, not in the way of like the same values of Donald Trump, but in the way it was like a Molotov to the establishment, which had failed them. Right. Yeah. And that's what Zelensky was. It was the idea that, well, in order to have like fulfill on the Euromaidan revolution, we need to get rid of the oligarch and replace him with somebody like Zelensky. Zelensky then gets into office and he doesn't have a lot of experience, doesn't deliver on a lot of the promises that a lot of people kind of hoped he would. For example, he was a peace candidate and he wasn't able to deliver on peace with Russia. Now, I would make the argument that was because the Russians were just their position was so um, uh, unable to be able to negotiate with like they were so uncompromising that it was impossible for him to accept a peace deal that wouldn't see his country cut up like it was colonial age Africa. And so the war happens. And that's when Zelensky, I think his true skills started to shine as somebody who has experience with media was able to rally the international community. He stayed in Ukraine, which I've been told by anybody who's anybody that him staying in Ukraine and not fleeing was one of the most important early war decisions yep. that happened in Ukraine, that if he was going to flee, that could have easily made it. So other politicians, other figures fleed, and then the whole government starts collapsing. And then that three day invasion might've actually looked more similar to what the Russians wanted, but by him staying that's what kind of has enshrined him as such a popular leader in Ukrainian history. That's how we got to Zelensky of, of today. That, that That's the, the broad strokes path to how we got Zelensky. Now, you'll have to give me some more context on this because I don't know nearly as much as you do, at least digging into the details. But when you look at the 2019 election and that from what I remember, the Donbass region, like the eastern part of Ukraine, he won in a landslide. Like, wasn't it uh, like Zelensky? 70, yeah. Wasn't it like um, 75 percent, 80 percent in the election in the eastern part of Ukraine? Uh, in, in the second round, yeah. In the second oh. round, when it was when it was him and Petro Poroshenko, yeah. it was like that. In the round before that, it was a lot more diverse okay. because the other the other parties were able to like nudge. It was like in the second round, though, Zelensky won. Zelensky won basically everywhere outside of I think certain areas around Lviv. I forget exactly, right? Where, but he won the only area he did not win uh, in the end. Um, when when he was elected, uh, it was versus him versus Petro Poroshenko. I mean, the people dutifully elected Zelensky. He's the democratically elected leader. And the election monitors at the time said that the exit polling closely matched, if not exactly matched, what the results were of the election. Election monitors didn't have a problem with the results. It was a 
free and fair election in Ukraine. And the fact that international monitors didn't ring any alarm bells, I think that's a, a really big accomplishment in the advancement of Ukrainian democracy. And it's part of the reason why I'm so concerned. I don't want to see all that progress pushed back upon. Ukraine has enough issues strengthening right. their civil institutions, dealing with corruption, and trying to uphold their democracy as it is. The last thing they need is a is an authoritarian occupier making it that much di more difficult to uphold these uh, uphold their democracy. Uh, so, so I was, oh, yeah, I was no going to ask uh, Poroshenko, uh, from what I understand, he was, you know, people said that Zelensky was the U.S.-backed candidate, but from my understanding, Poroshenko had more U.S. backing than Zelensky did. We we wanted, we liked Poroshenko. Right. Um, Poroshenko was more friendly towards the West. We liked Poroshenko because of that. And he was uh, somebody who wasn't like super duper tied to the Kremlin like Yanukovych was, at least at least definitely not to the same degree. And so we had a much more friendly relationship with Petro Poroshenko. Um, and I mean, if we could have controlled uh, the results of the 2019 election in the United States, if we could have picked it, I think there's a decent chance we would have picked Petro Poroshenko just out of the fact that he had more experience as a legislature. Uh, as a legislator and as an administrator, where Zelensky didn't really have any, and he was kind of a wild card. And so if this was really like, you know, if Ukraine is a puppet state, um, it doesn't make sense for us to bet on the comedian. Right. Well said. Well said. So um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and these are two, two of the major questions that I had. Um, this is another thing I've heard a lot the last couple of days is these democratic votes. I think they were Donbass region and Crimea. Uh, yeah. There was one in Crimea in 2014 um, as evidence. So these 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 major votes to 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 join the Russian Federation or at least leave the the Ukrainian nation state. Uh, can you give me some context on those votes? What do your what you know like I, I know like the Crimean one uh, in 2014 was right after the Russian occupation and it was like a major landslide. It seems very fishy. Yeah. Uh, but do you have any context on that or thoughts? So when the when the Russians invaded Crimea, the thing that's really weird about it is the whole time they denied it. They denied they were doing it. That's why they were called the Little Green Men is because they removed the Russian insignias. They went in and they took over the peninsula. Igor Gherkin, who is the former defense minister for the Donetsk People's Republic, which is, you know, the Russian proxy state in Donetsk, also a former FSB agent, alleges that they literally held Ukrainian administrators at gunpoint telling them to dissolve the government. Um, that's according to Igor Gherkin. Uh, who is, again, on the Russian side of the equation. Whether you believe him, I guess, is up to you, since there's no photos or videos of it, but I, I don't know why he would lie about that, since it makes Russia look worse. Um, uh, at that point, they then wanted to rubber stamp the process. And that's, I think, the best way to, to kind of define what these votes are, is they're not legitimate... An account, a legitimate accounting of exactly what the democratic will of the people of the region is. It's it's basically formalizing the process, trying to incorporate it into the Russian legal system. And they need something to try to give them a mandate. And it's very easy to just be like, they support us. And if they support us, there you go, you're done. Problem is, though, if it is an actual democratic election, then it's kind of hard to control the results. What if they vote the wrong way? Now, the Russians already had a lot of advantages. If you were a pro-Ukraine Ukrainian, there's a decent chance that once the Russian soldiers started coming, you got the hell out of there. And so there's going to be people who are displaced. There's going to be people who are afraid to come out and vote. This is why it's so difficult to poll in Russia uh, is because people are, are a lot of time very nervous about sharing their real political beliefs. A channel I would recommend for people to check that out would be, I think it's called like 1420. Uh, it's a Russian uh, vlogger who goes around and asks people political questions. And it's crazy the amount of people who say, I have an opinion, but I can't share it. 
on camera into the camera just like very openly saying they can't share their opinion and so it's very difficult to exactly exactly try to calculate what the percentages was in crimea but they could have tried to host a democratic election it's just that they didn't the accusations of ballot stuffing were all over the place there was no real international monitors that would usually monitor something like this that could have validated all of the monitors that they did bring out were just like independent reporters that don't have ties to these reputable organizations that in many instances seem to have very pro-Russia frameworks or pro-Russia viewpoints. And so there wasn't really anything to really, I think, legitimize this as a democratic result. Not to mention, none of the options on the referendum in the first place even listed rejoin Ukraine. There was no option for them to even rejoin Ukraine. So if you're pro-Ukraine, why even go out and vote? Right. Yeah, it was, if I remember correctly, at least with the Crimean referendum, it was, uh, you know, join Russia or adopt the 92 uh, Ukrainian constitution, which I think gave Crimea like more autonomy is what it was. And then there was no other. And then that was it. Right. That is Um, true. And so there was no option for these people who were just part of the Ukrainian nation to vote to be part of the Ukrainian nation. And so why would you vote in that election? Right. And if you were just annexed, do you think you'd vote 97 percent? to join the Russian Federation. 97. It's a beautiful result. True <laughs> unity on the peninsula. Perfect unity. Well, absolutely. So my <laughs> question is, I do want to say add one more thing. Since that annexation, over 250,000 Russians have migrated to Crimea, which poses a really difficult ethical dilemma for a lot of people where it's like, this is very clear. It's very clear why this is happening. They're doing this in order to increase their influence in this strategically important peninsula for them. They want the military base there. They want access to the Black Sea. That's important for them. This, With control of Crimea, they can have a stranglehold on Ukrainian trade out of the region if they wanted to trade grain or anything like that. It'd be very difficult for the Ukrainians to engage in trade without the permission of the Russian state. Um, I, I, I just want to emphasize that every day that passes, the Russians are trying to make sure that the odds of Crimea going back to Ukraine is basically nil. They're trying to decrease it every day, either through engaging in basically what is illegal settlement, uh, something I guess it would be similar to um, what happened. What, what happens in a lot of the West Bank, maybe uh, when it comes to like the idea of people coming to uh, a territory that they're not really a member of and settling down and changing the demographics of the region permanently. And that is that is the purpose of, of the settlement. There is to make it so even if the the the, the situation changes, there's just so many. Russians that have been brought there that there's not really much Ukrainian sentiment left because they've all left because they were terrified. Do we, do we know how many uh, people fled Crimea? I don't, I I actually, I don't know the number off the back of my head, but I know that I I met a a lot of people in Ukraine who used to live in Crimea. And that's, that's exactly what next question was, is do you do when you were over there, you it sounds like you talked to a lot of them. What would, what did they tell you? Do you, is Crimea like, or is Ukraine like the, the United States where we have friends everywhere? We know, people all over the country. So if, if you know, if California got invaded, I'd have a dozen friends I could call and say, what's actually going on? Is that what, is that what you're getting in, in, in Ukraine? It's, it's difficult to communicate with people who are in occupied territory because it's obviously a security risk if they start saying things that aren't that uh, friendly. But there are reports that get out. People find ways to communicate using things like VPNs or other way to like get messages out. And there's a real chilling effect in a lot of the occupied territory of of not expressing any pro-Ukrainian sentiment. You can get arrested for just playing the Ukrainian national anthem. 
in these territories because they see that as too sympathetic to the Ukrainian Ukraino Nazis. Therefore, you need to be tamed for further investigation. And so if that's the type of environment you've created where just playing a song could get you thrown in a prison cell, it's, it's going to be right. very difficult yeah. for somebody to kind of express those beliefs publicly. And, and so there's a lot of in here song that was a problem uh, in Crimea. That was a problem in all occupied territory. It's a problem. There's a lot of accusations of torture that I have that have been backed up by international groups like Amnesty International uh, and uh, photographic and video evidence of said torture, which is many times just posted online by the people engaging in the torture. Um, that's not even to talk about like POWs, but just like civilians in occupied territory. Hmm. So you brought up uh, you brought up the Ukraino Nazis, and that's that's a big question, big issue. Everyone, you know, Josh Josh was going to go there too. Uh, so, so what do you what do you answer? People say, "Listen, I've got these photos. There's Nazi iconography on these photos, on these uniforms. What's that about? Why you know the why 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 are we funding Nazis?" No, know, I mean, the Azov Battalion is a real battalion, right? I mean, like the, it is a real battalion. What do you, yeah. what do you say to the people that are like, "Hey, the Ukrainian government's just run by a bunch of Nazis"? Because I think there's a there's a it's it's nuanced, right? Yeah. I I, th I think there's there's nuance, but I mean, there's nuance in the way that like um, if it's, it's like nuance in the way that like there's a tiny grain, there's like a kernel of truth in like a, like a big ball of lies. Because when somebody says like, yeah, like at the Rage Against the Machine rally, I heard the Ukrainian Nazi government. And I kept hearing that over and over and over. The Ukrainian Nazi government. This is the same thing that the Russian uh, state media talks about all the time. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me because I know who Zelensky is and I know the type of advancements that Ukrainian society has made recently. For example, in 2015, the Ukrainian government passed uh, workplace protections for transgender and uh, homosexual individuals. If you're a Nazi government, it is like was I don't know like like Hitler's exactly. I don't remember him passing like the anti like the pro trans workplace anti discrimination law. Like that just didn't happen because the values fundamentally contradicted that right fundamentally. And yeah. so when we say it's a Nazi government, the values of the government is not Nazi. It is not. Zig Heil, Adolf, that so calling it a Nazi government is dishonest and it's and is being purposely is purposely misrepresenting the values of the government and the type of policies they introduce. Because the number one question I will ask anyone when they ask, is Ukraine a Nazi government? Is what is the Nazi laws that have been passed? What is the Nazi legislation that has been implemented? And there isn't any. There isn't any. Right. And okay. So, well, I mean, it, so in many I countries, was... there are there are Nazi parties in the parliament, or there are like absolutely far, far parties. There's no equivalent in Ukraine, which is something that's notable. Uh, like in the parliament, there's not an equivalent Nazi S party. Well, you can find those in other countries. Sorry to cut there, you off. That. There are far right parties in Ukraine that have seats. I guess the one that scares me the most that has a seat is Svoboda. They have one seat in the Rada out of 450. Um, but now, when we talk about Nazis. <laughs> um, I would say they're pretty damn close if if no. not there. Um, I, I think the, the people that scare me the most will, will always be be right sector. They scare me the most because I've interacted with their people and they are, I would say, definitely right wing um, at the very least. The only actual Nazi ever met in Ukraine was a right sector guy with a tattoo on his neck. But when we talk about the vast majority of Ukrainians, they're not fascists, they're not Nazis. In fact, the Azov Battalion's original like political party that broke off from it, I think it's like called the National Corps or whatever, they never got a single seat in the Rada. They've had complete political failure. The reason why a lot of Ukrainians like Azov isn't because I love their moral values and their political party. It's the idea that, oh, they're the guys who were in Mariupol and fought to the last man. 
that's how they talk about them. That's how when, when they talk about respecting them, that's what they're trying to talk about respecting. They don't care about their political values really as much because if they did, they would be voting for them, but they aren't. There are Nazis in the Ukrainian military. That's impossible to deny. But the reason we're even talking about Nazis in Ukraine in the first place is because the Russians claimed they were engaging in a denazification operation. And the thing that gets me about that is the Russians have Nazis in their own military. Rusich is a neo-Nazi militia that is fighting off of behalf of the Russian government in Ukraine that has been involved in the occupation of Kherson, that has been involved in war crimes and many other atrocities where they're publicly posting their, their propaganda online and blog posts about these Ukrainian degenerates. It's like it's just like ranting like Hitler-esque uh, Nazism that is being spewed out by these people. There are Nazis in the Wagner Group. In fact, the Wagner Group was founded by a neo-Nazi who has an SS tattoo in his chest and has always been a home for the Russian far right. There are other right Russian right-wing groups that have engaged in atrocities against religious minorities. And I guess my main my main point here is, how do you use a uh, Nazis to denazify Nazis? Yeah, <laughs> that's why that's yeah. the only reason we're talking about this in the first place. And it just doesn't make sense because if the Russians really cared about it, they wouldn't be using Nazis to invade Ukraine. It's it's an issue that is a real issue in Ukraine, it, as it is a real issue in, I think, most Western countries, the, the problem of racism, anti-Semitism, and neo-Nazism. But to use it as a justification for the Russian invasion of Ukraine would be like somebody trying to uh, point out, for example, the neo-Nazi that was exposed in 2018 as trying to plan a terror attack from inside the United States military, pointing at that and say, China has a right to liberate California from the neo-Nazis in the American right. military. I understand... Yeah. David Duke has gotten more votes than the Azov Battalion, the, the Nazi or political the, parties in Ukraine. So, that's right. yeah. <laughs> just saying. Party. But and so I want to. I want to. So you said that you know what law, what Nazi laws have they passed? And there's three things that I think I've, I've heard as, okay. as saying these are laws: uh, the conscription and 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 not allowing any any men to leave the country, uh, banning political parties and banning uh, religions. So you know, we can we can take this on one by one. So. Yeah. There's a difference between some uh, something being authoritarian in nature and something being Nazi, right? Drafting is, I guess you can call authoritarian in nature. I'm, I'm, I'm with the libertarian, so I would assume most of you probably don't have a very positive view of the draft. Most countries, though, if they were in Ukraine's position, would immediately institute a draft. You do not think that if there was Chinese troops marching up into taking like New Mexico and California, all these, that America would would not pull the trigger on a draft or Canada or Mexico, the United Kingdom, any nation on the planet, every single nation on the planet, if put in that position where they think they can use a draft to stop what is, in my view, a war of cultural annihilation, right? Where we have Dmitry Medyev, the former prime minister, former president of Russia, right-hand man of Vladimir Putin saying, Ukraine, this is a disease of a mind, that the Russians gave Ukrainians the right to exist, that they created their state under Lenin, that it is an artificial state that can be taken away with ease, that that the Ukrainian language is a fake language. This is the type of stuff that's talked about on, on TV, and Ukrainians are terrified of that, and that propaganda has consequences, like in Bucha, which I, I went to in person and talked to the people who lived in Bucha during the occupation and the type of atrocities they saw, and it was horrific. Or in Izium, where a mass grave is uncovered of over 440 bodies. That is the largest mass grave uncovered in Europe since the Yugoslav genocides. Right. Like this is like horrific stuff that is being waged upon Ukraine. And so people can say that I don't like the fact of a government ever drafting people or saying that we need to keep you here in, in case we need to defend the nation. And that's fine. 
But that's number one. That's not a Nazi policy because that's the policy of basically any government on the planet and any other government would do the same thing in Ukraine's position. So I, I guess for that one, I, I would say that the other one was what was the other ones? Could you tell me again? Uh, banning religions and banning other political parties. As, as for banning other political parties, a lot of these political parties did have ties to the Kremlin or were tied in some way to the people who were collaborating, as in party members when the Russians evaded, saying everybody surrender, the Ukrainian, the Russians are taking over, or even went on to directly collaborate with the Russian occupiers. And so when you have political parties that are very sympathetic to said invader or have members of these parties literally collaborating with the invader, it's not going to be that surprising that the government's going to crack down on them. Now, you can still disagree with that if, if you want to, and I understand that, but trying to portray that as like Nazi in nature, when I'm going to be honest, Abraham Lincoln kicked people out of the Congress and Senate after the secession for, for I think, obvious reasons. Abraham Lincoln engaged in, engaged in things like the suspension of habeas corpus. Does that make Abraham Lincoln a Nazi? Okay, well, if I ask the Mises caucus, maybe, I don't know. But asking most people, Abraham Lincoln's on the penny for a reason. Uh, as for the last thing, banning the religion, the head of the of the Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, which is also political in nature, whether people want to, if people want to ignore that or not, I, I don't know, but it is. He said that if somebody goes to Ukraine and dies fighting in Ukraine, that they will go to heaven. If you are looking at a religious institution, which its head is directly saying, go to Ukraine, fight and die, and you will go to heaven. It's kind of hard to really, I think, miss exactly why the Ukrainians did this. They didn't do it, I think, in my mind, because they just wanted to bully this the, the church or they wanted to go after the church because they're just so aggressive towards it. I think they did it for somewhat legitimate national security reasons. I actually still disagree with it because I do believe we should still hold ourselves up to a certain principle even in wartime, even if okay. we do need to be flexible. But it's not a Nazi position to respond to that type of hostility from a religious institution by trying to stop it from undermining your national security. Like all of these things have nuanced positions to explain them. But once we remove all the nuance, what we can portray Ukraine as this evil authoritarian state, when it's a nation state trying to survive and engaging in every single means it can in order to survive, which the majority of its people want it to do. And if I understand correctly, both the political party, is there were small, tiny, minor parties and uh, the religion, as well as only a small, a very there was small... The, there was, like, a bigger opposition party, but not, not, no, like, I would, it wasn't like they controlled 40% of the seats or 30% of the or 35 It wasn't anything like that. Well, and, and at this point, we don't have to endorse it. Uh, yeah. The idea that it's not a not yeah, I mean, that's not an exclusively Nazi thing. It's an authoritarian thing. Sorry, Daniel, go for it. No, that's okay. Just to clarify, uh, Russia also has a, uh, a draft, correct? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay, just just making sure oh, they're you know on the so same. For level anybody there. who didn't, we, <laughs> the classical liberal caucus, uh, we uh, uh, we made for our libertarian of the year. We we put up Boris Yeltsin of the Libertarian Party of Russia because they are legitimately putting their lives and liberty at risk, going out and protesting these wars. Yeah. Um, they've had members being uh, after being convicted of of protesting the war get f conscripted into their military because they protested the war. They get conscripted into the russian draft which is I, I mean it's just horribly evil like at least in this country we have the draft still but at least there's some concept of conscientious objector um right. but they yeah it was a practice where if they arrest you in an anti-war protest 
they would take you and they'd bring you to the office and then sign you up for conscription. Yeah. As a way to discourage people from going out and protesting against the war. Yeah, I mean, if being a libertarian in the United States might get you dragged on Twitter, being a libertarian in Russia will get you killed. So, like, that is true courage, uh, standing up to be anti-war in Russia. That's that was a good choice for sure. Uh, Danielle, do you have any questions? I've got a couple more that I wanted to ask before we get to time, but I feel like we've kind of got over you. Jonathan stole the one question that I wanted, but that's okay. Um, I just have a wrap up one when you're done. So yeah, sure. I'll, I'll get through mine then. No problem. So, um, one of the things that I've heard a lot recently is that NATO expansion, and I've got a lot of opinions on this, but I really want to hear your opinion on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, NATO expansion has provoked Russian intervention in Ukraine, right? Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of context here that I'd love to unpack with you. Um, uh, but can you give me, uh, your opinion on the viewpoint? And kind of how it, whether it's credible or not, um, in this context. So I think there's nuance to it, but if if you wanted my blunt answer, I would say probably not. And the reason why is when the Russians invaded Ukraine on February 24th, when when they did the massive expansion of the war, because the war has been going on for eight for nine years, but the expansion of the war, the main about was well. It was because you guys just kept expanding NATO and we didn't want Ukraine to join NATO. That's the foundational point they would be making at them. They still make the point that we didn't want Ukraine to join NATO. There was no risk of Ukraine joining NATO. Ukraine, by the foundational laws of NATO, could not join due to the fact that they have territorial disputes with the Russian Federation. The fact that the Russians have control of Crimea and that separatists backed by the Russians and Russian soldiers had control of one-third of the Donbass, the Donetsk and Luhansk, that meant that foundationally they just aren't allowed in because according to NATO's founding documents, we don't allow nation states with those territory disputes in because we don't want to be dragged into a direct war. We don't want to be dragged into that type of a conflict. Right. And so as long as the Russians could keep control of Crimea, they don't even need to control the Donbass, but just Crimea – and Ukraine didn't recognize it, and they still were saying that's our territory, which that wasn't stopping anytime soon. They they can't join NATO. And that had no risk of ending anytime soon. And so it it has to be more than just NATO expansion if that was even a major contributing factor in the first place, or they would have invaded at a different period in time when maybe NATO membership was even more likely because there wasn't anything changing that was going to bring forward NATO membership. I think that there was Russian nationalistic reasons. I think there was resource reasons. I think that they thought the war would be a lot easier um, uh, than it was. And so they made the calculation that maybe it'd be easier to take Ukraine on now than late. I think, I think there's a lot of calculations that went into their decision to invade nationalistic delusions, economic resource control, a million different yep. reasons. But when we just say NATO expansion, I think that's, not paying attention to the signs that led up to the invasion, which is well, and it's also oh, sorry, go for it. Didn't mean to what, 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 let me just wrap up, which is yeah. that they couldn't join NATO, so I don't understand why they would invade now since they weren't any closer to joining NATO, right? And uh, I, can, and I confirm that I literally pulled up NATO's it says states which have ethnic disputes or external territorial disputes, including iridescent claims or inter internal jurisdictional disputes, must settle those disputes by peaceful means. In accordance with OSCE principles, resolution resolution of such disputes would be a factor in determining whether to invite a state to join the alliance. 
Yeah, and 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 everything, Dylan. I agree with what you said, and I think another piece of context that a lot of people in the, the I hear in the libertarian space say it, this is an echo of Russian propaganda. Is like, oh, the expansion of NATO um, and the idea that Ukraine could theoretically join NATO, or the fact that NATO has spread so far east is the reason why Putin's acted now. But it's been twenty years that Russia's had a border with NATO. I mean, Estonia and what Estonia and Latvia joined in two thousand and four. Mm-hmm. That was 19 years ago. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland all have a border with Russia. Poland owned right. Kaliningrad. Um, the the thing oh, the thing the, that, the thing that gets me not to mention if Finland joins. Um, the, the the thing that gets me is number one, if the goal of the war was to stop NATO expansion, it's failed miserably. <laughs> not only because NATO is more involved in Ukraine than ever, uh, and the odds of them joining uh, NATO have gone up because if they win the war, then they don't long they no longer have the territorial disputes and they can join NATO. Not to mention, polling in Ukraine right now is at eighty nine percent for the amount of people that want to join NATO, which is understandable in the midst of a military invasion. Finland, which had this position of historic neutrality where they would negotiate deals between Russia and the West and different people, they were seen as an intermediary in much the same way that Oman was. They've dropped that and they're going to join NATO. Sweden, similarly. And they want to join NATO. Now, the only thing stopping them seems to right now be Turkish anger. But here's another thing that would have stopped uh, Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainians from joining NATO. You need to have every single NATO state agree. Do you guys think Viktor Orban would have given the thumbs up to Ukraine joining NATO, even if they dealt with the territorial dispute reasons? What about Erdogan? Maybe Erdogan would be more likely, but we see him giving trouble to the Swedes and the Finns. And so I do not believe that even if they resolve the issue of territorial disputes in some negotiated settlement, that they would still be able to join NATO because they would need to get Viktor Orban. They would have to convince him in some way. And I, it's just all the factors that would that would lead to them joining NATO. There's just so many that I that I think that a lot of people don't realize that joining NATO isn't as simple as, OK, America's giving you the thumbs up. You can join NATO now. Right. It's a lot more nuance. Um, and it's worth noting that, um, to your point, just to kind of echo what you said, in 2010, there was a vote on whether Ukraine should join NATO, and they said no, right? Because they didn't, you know, at least, you know, I think it was a referendum, like a nation referendum. There was a decision made not to join NATO back then, and it's only increased the likelihood that they're going to join or the, the the morale for that decision, you know, the support I, for it. I, I just need mm-hmm. to emphasize this, and I know that most people want to imagine that all nation states and all leaders are engaged in behavior where they have the best interests of everyone at heart. But I have a rude awakening for everyone. That's just not the truth that most nation states act in a very selfish manner. Um, I'm not, I'm, I like to consider myself an idealist. I believe in international institutions. I'm a liberal, right? But nation states do act in their own self-interest. And it has been the policy of the Putin government for at least the last 10 to 15 years, and and some would even say go further back, depending on who you're talking to, has been to develop um, strategic control in some capacity, if, if not soft power or hard power or alliance, over all nations that touch it, basically all of them, like Kazakhstan, most of Central Asia, uh, and the entirety of the post-Soviet sphere. That is one of the primary goals of Russian foreign policy, is to reestablish dominance over what it considers its strategic interests. And what strategic interest translates to when you're talking about Russia is if it's close to Russia, it's theirs. That's what they mean by strategic interests. Um, A great example I would bring up is the Foundations for Geopolitics. Now, this is written by a crackpot that some of you might know. His name's Alexander Dugan. He was in news recently because his daughter went kablooey 
in a in a car in in uh, in Russia. Now he, a lot of people think he's like he's like the shaman of Putin, and he tells me that none of that's true. That's all bullshit. It's all PR, right? What is true though is that he wrote a book called The Foundation of Geopolitics, and this is his main claim to fame, and it's taught in the Russian military academy to enlisted officers. And in this book, it describes how Russia needs to take territory away from, and I let me, I'm trying, trying to remember off the back of my head, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Moldova, Ukraine, China, mm. Mongolia, Kazakhstan, and just like every nation it touches, it deserves land from. Now, he has reformed one of the more recent versions to include China as part of this new pact, so they no longer want to split up China, even though he originally thought it was part of their, like, one of the core enemies. Uh, but I, just to explain that, whether we're talking about Alexander Dugan or the Russian military establishment, they do want to establish control over what is what is formerly post, I mean, what is post-Soviet Europe. That is their, one of their main focuses. And even if NATO never expanded, Putin, if he was in power, would still be pursuing that. Absolutely. Well wrong, said. Wrong button. One thing I was going to point out is <clears throat> Russia's history, even post, I mean, clearly that the USSR had a massive expansionist imperialistic empire uh, going. But even post USSR, you have it invading all these, all these nations to Chechnya. They've had a, this is the other thing. Like if, if Ukraine surrendered today, if the government of Ukraine surrendered today, would we have peace? And I don't think we would. I think we would have sectarian violence. We've got guerrilla warfare. Mm-hmm. This isn't this isn't the option. I mean, look at Chechnya. They have uh, they had a decade. They had a war, and then a few years later, they had another war that lasted for a decade. So this this idea that if you just if the government of Ukraine just you stepped your fingers, it disappeared, that we would just have peace. I don't see it. One of the big things I, I always like to emphasize when we talk about peace deals is when somebody says we should be negotiating peace. My question is always like, okay, what's your settlement? Because when you look at the Russian position and compare it to the Ukrainian position on what the negotiated settlement should be, they're completely different planets. The Ukrainians want the Russians out of the country. Pretty simple to understand. Get out of our country. This is our land. We have a right over our own foreign policy. Please leave. The Russians, their current demands, if we're not talking about originally, which is just overthrow the country, right? Their demands currently is the annexation of Crimea, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporozhye, and Kherson the demilitarization of Ukraine, and it promises not to join any defensive structures that it could use to defend itself. So it gives up like what, a fifth, maybe two fifths of the country to Russian occupation, permanent Russian occupation. And when I talk to people about signing these peace deals, I haven't met a single Ukrainian who's like, yes, I would agree to a peace deal like that. Or absolutely, I would agree to that because they view it like signing their neighbor's death warrant after seeing all these mass graves uncovered. And nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to leave the people behind. Um, but let's say that they were to accept this. What would stop the Russians after they've made the Ukrainians give up all their weapons, give up a fifth of their territory, and, I mean, lock themselves in, I think, probably economic dice, uh, desolation since they've been unable to reclaim their territory and you've got all these people displaced and they just went through a ravenous war. What's going to stop the Russians from just invading again in five years now that the Ukrainians don't have any weapons, anyone to defend themselves, and have already given up one-fifth of the country? What's going to stop them from doing it again? And people would say, no, this time the Russians will the Russians will abide by the treaty. They said they wouldn't invade Ukraine in the Budapest Memorandum. They also said they wouldn't engage in economic coercion. When they did invade Crimea, the whole time they said they weren't doing it. When they right. did invade the Donbass, 
because during the rebels and the Donbass, they sent troops. They didn't accept that they were doing that for real, that they were sending troops in there until 2016. They were denied it the whole time. And the right. lead up to this invasion, the whole time they're saying they're not going to invade. You're crazy. You're crazy. You're crazy. Oh, my God. This is all propaganda. You had a bunch of people everywhere fall for it. Uh, from Twitch streamers to mainstream political commentators, before then they invaded again. But this time, when the Ukrainians are going to be in a weaker political position, a weaker military position, and have less allies, that time, when it would be the easiest for the Russians to invade, that will be the time they finally decide, now we've had enough. Bullshit. Yep. If you care about long-term peace in the world and you want to see more peace, the best thing that could happen in this situation is Ukraine could win or push back the Russian invaders or weaken them in some way. Um, Russia riding, you know, completely mowing over Ukraine and getting all their demands is going to result in more war in Europe and more war in the world and not less. So I remember Zelensky said something that really connected with me. And I don't do hero worship, okay? So if anybody wants to knock Zelensky down a peg. Go look up Zelensky piano video where he plays the piano with his penis. Um, I love that video. Personally, I think that makes him more electable in my opinion. Um, I I, I, I want to see Biden release a video similar to make sure that he's still up to the job. People talk about like, you know, the mental capacity tests. I think that's perfect. Perfect for that. But uh, Zelensky talked about in a train ride with, I forget exactly what news agency the reporter was with, but when they were talking about ending the war and they were talking, oh, my camera just went whack. <laughs> hmm. um, when they were talking about ending the war and they were talking about finding a settlement, Zelensky said, I don't just want to find a settlement to this war. I don't just want a ceasefire. I, I don't just want an end to the violence for a year, two years, three years. I want the end of the cycle of violence of hundreds upon hundreds of years of Ukraine's historical oppression. Voltaire wrote about Ukrainians want to be a free state, to be a free people. This is something that has existed for a long time, even if the Russian state will deny it. And so he thinks that this is an opportunity, a unique opportunity, when Ukraine's captured the imagination of the world, when they've seen the, everybody's paying attention to Ukraine. They've got the backing of, the, uh, of, the, of what is called the West, right? NATO states like the United States, Germany, states they ne never thought would be sending them heavy weapons. This is their one opportunity, their one shot, one minute, legs, arm spaghetti, whatever, you know, the Eminem song. This is their shot. And he wants to end that cycle of violence by pushing the Russians out. And to accept a ceasefire now that would only delay the violence is just kicking this can down the road to another generation of Ukrainians who have to engage in the same struggle and will be saying, God damn it, why didn't our parents deal with this? Now we have to. Yeah, I, it's interesting because I think Putin did two major things by by invading Ukraine when he did. He uh, increased support of Ukrainians to join the West. That's the first thing. And he also initiated what I think it, you kind of touched on a second ago, Dylan, with the birth of the Ukrainian identity, like that Ukrainian national identity in, in a real way. Um, that's a historically significant thing. And it's been very interesting to see this play out over the last decade. Um, very, very interesting. Oh, there we go. I fixed it now. Beautiful. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Do I, you guys I, I, have any? Yeah, go for it, Dylan. I'm trying to remember. I was going to say something, but then I lost it. Um, I, I'll just say when it comes to negotiating peace deal and finding a settlement, at the end of the day, the only just reason to go to war is a more prosperous peace. And so if the reason, if the war ends and this is all over and all we've done is kick the can down the road to another generation... The children that I've interacted with, I remember I went to a, a Polish school that was hosting Ukrainian refugee children. 
And the head headmistress was very nice. Was bringing me around. It was the first time she met an American, and so she was, she was. Um, I was trying to give the best impression, so they don't just think we're all like violent GTA characters going yeehaw <laughs> and you know crashing everywhere. Um, she brought me back outside to watch the children play and talk to me about how the Polish children, Ukrainian children, like you know, they get together, they have a nice time, they're. They're fantastic to get along. And she emphasized this because there's a lot of historical hatred between Poland and, and Ukraine due to a lot of violence that happened and, and like massacres and a lot of ethnic hatred, which has a lot of it's been pushed back in this war. And a lot of people have, have said it, it's an amazing actually how much Ukraine and Poland have kind of bonded over their shared suffering at the hand of Russian imperialism. Um, but while we were back there, I asked, how do you tell the difference between the Ukrainian children and the Polish children if they play together all the time? And he says, there's one way to tell the difference. We live near an airport, and when the plane passes over the school, the Polish children just keep on playing while the Ukrainian children lay down on the floor. Because in Ukraine, there is no civilian airlines right now. All the planes are military planes. And so they were taught to be scared of planes. And I think of that type of trauma where you're just playing on the playground, you hear a jet engine and you get down. When I came back from Ukraine, that actually happened to me when I was at a gorillas concert. It was my first time hearing a plane go over my head in a very long time and I was a little intoxicated. So I, that probably didn't help me. And so I could think of no worse sin than passing down this struggle to those children who have already been traumatized so much. And that's what's that has been communicated to me a lot by a lot of Ukrainian mothers and fathers saying that by God will endure as much suffering as possible to get this over with, get this done with. So I don't have to pass this over to my kids and traumatize them more than they already have been. We don't need all these traumatized babies in 18, 19 years taking Kalashnikovs and ambushing Russian soldiers. This should be done here and now. And libertarians across the world can agree with that and understand that. You know, the ability for people to defend themselves is not something that should, it's not in conflict with libertarian ideology. Um, you know, we can have debates all day long about to the extent of which the West should support them. But the idea that Ukrainians should have the right to defend their property, have their own identity, engage in any trade they want to engage with any country and determine their future, that's libertarian. Like, if you believe in libertarian ideals, then you support the Ukrainian people and their right to do those things and like their right to self determination. So it's really powerful stuff. Can I ask you? Can I ask you a question? Since I got all the questions, go for it. So I've seen you, Joshua, in the trenches on Twitter. Okay, yeah. every other day you're tweeting something about Ukraine, and, and you're and you know what you're doing. You're you're poking. Like I'm not I'm not backing down on this. You're poking the bear a bit, making sure that they know your position on this, and I really respect it. And I try to back you up here and there. I hope you see it. But yes. I got to ask you, the Libertarian Party right now looks like a complete mess from the outside, right? I'm not a Libertarian. So at the end of the day, like I'm not like crying if the Libertarian Party isn't doing too well. But just out, just out of compassion, it's, 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 it's kind of sad to watch, though. To watch the Libertarian Party chapters tweeting about Taiwan's a part of China. To watch yeah. Libertarian Party chapters uh, praising, uh, in some instance, praising uh, Putin in some examples and going out and saying that, oh, you know, Zelensky's Hitler or speaking at the Rage Against the War Machine rally with Russian flags in the backdrop, right. having speakers on the same speakers list who, and I know this is like some, I know they ended up not speaking there, but who was a convicted pedophile 
but was right. still invited because a, at the very least he didn't support Ukraine. At the very least, he didn't want to send weapons. Where they invited multiple people who are pro-invasion. Who Jackson Hinkle, for example, who was one of the speakers who was calling Ukraine a Nazi state the whole time, said that he will vote for anybody who just cedes all of Ukraine to Russia. Yeah. yeah. Like it feels like a lot of the credibility that libertarians had when it comes to foreign policy, that anti-war stance, was really somewhat degraded with that rally because it wasn't just anyone. It wasn't just all one libertarian, two libertarians. Multiple libertarian ch chapters were there. The Delaware chapter, the Maryland chapter, and the chair of the party. You can't yeah. just say, oh, it's just a few libertarians. That seems to be the center of the party right now. Like, the, as in, that's the, the center of power in the party right now. For sure. We, um, we need a disclaimer that views shared on Twitter do not represent the Libertarian Party. As well. <laughs> the uh, the endorsement of the chair does carry some weight. And uh, yeah, I agree. Not all the Twitter accounts are representative of everyone in the party. And it's there's a lot of people in the party that are very disappointed in that. Um, I can tell you right now, Dylan, um, I've been involved in the party for 10, almost, I think my 13 year, or I'm sorry, my 11 year anniversary is this year. And um, I feel like right now the party is farther from its values and principles than it's ever been wow. like ever in the last 10 or at least in, in the last 10 years. Um, and so it's been very disappointing to see that. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, I don't want to speak for Jonathan Casey, but I think that one of the reasons why Jonathan uh, to start this caucus is because he's, he had uh, he saw some of that, the party diverging from their values, diverging from true libertarian principles. Because libertarian principles, again, we've, we've talked about them all night. The, you know, the idea that people should be free to defend themselves, free to be determine their own future, free to make decisions um, for themselves. And it's been very sad for me to see that, to be honest with you. So, I mean, it's an emotional thing for me. Like, it's been very sad for me to see that. Um, it's, it's physically painful. I think I've, I think I've told Josh this the other day. I sent him a tweet and I said, or I sent him a screenshot of a tweet. And I said, this physically hurts me to yeah. read this coming from, from a, a part of, we call ourselves the party of principle. And yet we're abandoning our principles uh, in so many ways. And it's not standing up for our principles and certainly not speaking to those principles. Yeah, and I, 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 I know it's, a lot it's painful. If, a lot I, of if I could just, it's yeah. to, sorry to interrupt, but I guess the, the thing that really gets me the most is that I always saw libertarianism, and I see this with a lot of third parties, there's a lot of, it's just, it's inherently anti-establishment, at least when it comes to how America is today, right? right. Um, it's an anti-establishment position, and it attracts people who are anti-establishment, you know, the counterculture, if you want to call it that or whatever. But it feels like when it came to that rally, that some of those people rejected the American establishment position, but instead they just replaced it with the Russian establishment position Absolutely. on Russian talking points. And that really bothered me because it felt like it was never about challenging power. It might've just been about for at least some individuals, maybe not the majority for some individuals, it was just about almost like virtue signaling. Well, a lot, yeah, a lot we, of we took about, Reflexive oh, contrarianism. In a lot of cases, that's what that's what it is. Jonathan, go for it. I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, yeah, we took. I mean, listen. I, I spoke out when the days after the rally came out. I spoke out about the rally and showed my concerns with what the rally was even saying. And then once we heard about what the who the speakers were, we spoke out again, and we took a lot of flack for that. And I'm absolutely proud that we did because we had to. We couldn't sit back and and let you know let us be bullied out of our position, a principal position that these people are going to harm and undermine the undermine the anti-war movement the anti-war movement is on life support right now yeah. and to to throw to throw it to the russian wolves was a was a horrible decision and i think it's going to really harm the the 
really harm the anti the real anti-war movement because really what anti-war I... means is that we oppose wars of aggression being I mean, anti-war doesn't mean just letting everybody invade you and, and giving up it means being letting people defend themselves it means opposing wars when they do start yeah. Think about how much credibility was given up for a, a crowd gathering of 2,000 mostly fringe, very like zero moderate people gathering. Like, that's the amount higher of, than I've, I've heard on projections. <laughs> like, I, I'm being extremely yeah. generous. I'm including yeah. like the people from the Lincoln Memorial just kind of wandered over. I'm including counter protesters yeah. being very yeah. generous. And it's like nobody that was speaking there were elected Congress people. Nobody that was speaking there were people who could have real influence on it. It just kind of honestly, it just felt like a podcaster rally. Well, and it's worth noting, to be honest with you, Dylan, I'll say this, that the podcasters basically took over the LP in, uh, in, in the summer of 2022. So it's not a surprise that that's the case. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that one of the things that we have to do as the CLC is we have to spend this next year really soul searching and, and, and providing a clear pathway out of this to the party. I actually just spoke to Jonathan about this a couple of weeks ago. It's on us as a caucus now to articulate what needs to change structurally in this party in order to fix these problems so they can't happen again. Uh, because this is this has set the party back a decade, if not more. Um, and it's been very sad to see, especially somebody who has put in so much time. Uh, I don't want to speak for everyone else, but I know Danielle and Jonathan have also put in a massive amount of time. And it's it's kind of like a spit in the face, especially if you're truly anti-war. And again, Jonathan said this. We were speaking about it out against this rally months before it ever happened. And I appreciate no one that, by the way. I saw that. I saw you doing that. And, right. and I, no I, I really do appreciate it. Yeah, there were no if they would have listened to some of the concerns. I mean, Jonathan provided them a slew of speakers that they could kick out. Jonathan approached. I the went LNC. to four people on their on the LNC board. Only one ever got back to me, but you know I, they don't owe me their time. But I yeah, we came up with a list of speakers that said, "Hey, listen, let's at least balance this thing out." Kick um, out the Russian speakers and replace them with these people that are actually truly anti-war. And we are trying. We tried every possible out opportunity to try to fix this problem before it blew up. And it, it was uh, nothing came from it. So I'm just I, I will say, Joshua, you might be like one of those people not associated with Nixon after the after Watergate. You know, it might be political gold in a year or two. You don't know by just not being associated. <laughs> That's the strategy. So we'll see how it goes. We just stay on the principles. If you stay on your principles in the end, it'll work out. So that's that's our strategy. That's what we're going for. Um but, can, yeah. So you're going you're going back to Ukraine here, right? Correct. In the next uh, couple of days, uh, I'm, how, I'm how can people follow you, find you? What 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 do you want people to go look for you at? I'm flying out this Saturday. I'm going to the Netherlands so I can have uh, uh, legal fun with my good friend over there. I'm gonna be hanging out with my friend Loner Box. Look, I'm a big advocate of legalizing psychedelics, and so Netherlands is like a, kind of like a pilgrimage. Um, then I'm going to go hang out with a few other people across Europe before crossing the border into Ukraine to film with IED crews, the people who disarmed the bombs. I want to film with them uh, because they're going to be doing work for the next 10 to 15 years. The war can end tomorrow, and there's still going to be kids stepping on mines and blowing up. Definitely with the type of booby traps that have been laid um, that need work done now that are like really sick. I mean, like toys tied up with grenades, sometimes dogs, like pet dogs that have been booby trapped, living dogs that have been booby-trapped. And those are the stuff that has to be dealt with now. But for the next 10, 15 years, they're going to be disarming artillery shells and rockets that are just lodged in places, like how we saw in Cambodia and Vietnam after those horrific atrocities that, that we engaged in over there with the bombing campaign. 
And so I want to make sure that there's some media out there that's covering the type of work they're going to be doing for the next 10, 15 years. And I think it's a unique experience, the type of nerves that you need to do that type of work, the type of person you need to be to do that type of work. And I haven't seen anybody else covering it um, that much. So I, I want to concentrate on that. I'm also going to try to interview aid workers, a bunch of other people. But if you want to follow me, uh, you can follow me at Dylan Burns TV on YouTube. That's D-Y-L-A-N-B-O-R-N-S TV. I got a new piece releasing in the next four or five days uh, where I interviewed signmyrocket.com, which is a website that will write custom messages on shells for donations and then fire them at the Russian army. It's an incredibly unique uh, website, incredibly unique operation. was very happy to visit them in person and, and talk to them. You can check out for that on my main channel. I'm trying to push that hard right now when it comes out. I think Danielle had one more question to take us out. I'm not sure, Danielle, if you want to close this up. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm always looking for just like free market solutions, things that we can do as individual advocates. We've talked about a lot of real macro stuff, a lot of things that you and I and and Jonathan and Joshua cannot do anything about, at least as far as I can tell right now sitting in this conversation. Do you have anything that I and our other classical liberals can do to feel empowered to actually do something to support Ukraine or the anti-war movement or just not be pro-Russia? So there are like a, a charities that I could direct you to towards. Um, I mean, I know some people around around Kharkiv, like my friend Anastasia, that like ordinates, uh, coordinates aid. But that's not the stuff that I usually am told when I ask Ukrainians, what can Americans do? The main thing I'm told and uh, this might get some some heat because, you know, libertarians, but is that they desperately need the means to defend themselves that only the United States government and other governments with standing militaries can provide. And every and nine times out of 10, when I ask a just literally random civilians on the road, it's almost like it's almost like Zelensky possesses them every single time I ask them this question and they'll say we need heavy weapons. We need heavy weapons because they view the Ukrainian military as the only thing separating them from the Russian army. And from the way the Russian army has been described to me from when they occupied communities, it doesn't sound like an army. It sounds like a fucking natural disaster. And so when you have that type of impending doom, that's a very big priority for them. Um, a way you could directly fundraise for the military, though, if you're uncomfortable with that as a libertarian, um, is signmyrocket.com, which I just did an interview with. And it's and some people find it fun to be able to run a write a custom message on a shell or a rocket and, and fire that at the Russians. There, there's some other humanitarian charities like that. And if you want, you can reach out to me afterwards and get you a few links that you could add maybe in the description of the video, something like that. People wanted to concentrate on more of the humanitarian angle. Cool. Um, I do want to say, just for the record, as a libertarian, I do support uh, the United States giving Ukraine weapons as long as we don't replace them. I've often theorized, you know, we give all, we give all of our police with the, we, we, uh, we give all of our police, all these military weapons and, and vehicles. Why are we giving them to our police to, to rule over us? I'd much rather have the Ukraine, like, give it to there the Ukrainians. Go. We're not using them. We're just going to throw them away. And let's not give them to the police. Let's give them to I the like Ukrainians. The military surplus to the Ukrainians. That's a great idea, Jonathan. I love that. it. <laughs> anyway, uh, Dylan, uh, thank you so much for joining. I, thank I, you. It's very informative. I learned a lot. I uh, hope our audience did too. I'm happy Thanks to again, be buddy. here. Thank you so much for having me on. And I wish you guys the best of luck. We might not be in the same party, but um, I, I appreciate people that aren't uh, dumbasses. And I appreciate that from you guys for not being that. I appreciate hey, you. How are you doing? Yeah, brother. Awesome. Stay safe. Great. Thank you. You guys have a good one. Bye bye.